to Mark chapter 11. We will continue our walk through the scriptures. Jesus has made his triumphal entrance into Jerusalem. The town is on edge. The, the people were shouting with joy as Jesus came to town. Many of them had spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that had been cut from the fields and those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. This is the moment that the people have been waiting for. Jesus has been performing miracles. He, has been, he had been teaching. He had been doing ministry for three years. He has been proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand and People were probably thinking, well, it's about time Jesus came in and started doing what they thought he should have been doing a long time ago. He should have already been here in Jerusalem. He should have already come to town and set up the kingdom. Not sure what he was waiting on. Let's get this show started. The people were thinking that he should have already taken the reins from the Roman government and set up the Jewish government. Jesus, the Savior of Israel, the Messiah, the one that God had sent, should have used God's army to wipe out all the ones who have been suppressing Israel. This should have already been done. What is Jesus waiting on? And the time has come. We have this grand entrance into Israel. Should have been a huge parade with the new leader riding in on a white horse and taking his seat on the throne in the middle of the city. But wait a minute. We have a problem, Houston. Something that everyone should have seen, visible to the common man. No white horse. No white horse. This is not how a conqueror comes into town. This is not how you roll in the kingdom. To be honest, riding in on a donkey is a bit embarrassing, you'd think. No military leader comes into town declaring victory riding on a donkey. No political leader comes to town declaring victory riding on a donkey. This is not how a king is supposed to act, according to man. But as we know, man's way is not God's way. You see, Jesus has turned the world's way of thinking upside down. If you want to be first, be last, he taught. If you want to be great, serve others instead of being served. Love your enemies. Forgive. Humble yourself. This is what the kingdom of God, of God is like, Jesus said. But this kind of teaching does not line up with the teaching of the world. How can you be first if you put others before yourself? Serving others is beneath a king. A king is to be served. No king loves his enemies. A king should never forget and definitely does not forgive. And if you humble yourself, how will anyone know that you're great? Jesus is not what the world would see as a king, and his teaching is not what the world would expect from a king. But Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the almighty creator and sustainer of the earth, 
the one who is sitting on the throne in heaven, chose to humble himself and rides into town on a donkey. He came to be served, not to be served. Take note, Jesus may have humbled himself and rode into town on a colt this time. This time. Not the next time. The next time he comes back on that white horse. Amen? We could read in Revelation 19.11, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire, and his head are many diadems. And he had a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule with the rod of iron. He will tread the wine presses of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. He will come back on that white horse. First time on a donkey. Next time, white horse. But we see in our text today, chapter 11, verse 11, we see that Jesus comes into town. He goes into the heart of Jerusalem, verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it is already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So Jesus rides into town, big parade. He rides in on the donkey. He comes to Jerusalem, and the word says he looks around at everything, and he headed back out of town. Seemed kind of odd. I bet this confused the disciples a little bit more, but I think they stayed in a state of confusion. But think about this for a minute. Jesus rides into Jerusalem. There's a celebration. There's a parade. Everyone's excited about his his arrival. The king is coming to, to take over. But after all the excitement cools down, Jesus goes to the temple, looks around, and leaves. The authorities didn't arrest him. They didn't kill him. So maybe the disciples were thinking, maybe Jesus was wrong about predicting his death. Maybe he misspoke when he said for the third time that they were going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him, spit on him, and flog him and kill him and after three days he will rise. The disciples were probably confused and hoping in their hearts that what Jesus had said was going to happen wasn't going to happen. If you remember, they wanted to skip all that stuff anyways. They just wanted the kingdom. They just wanted the good stuff. So they were probably glad that Jesus didn't get arrested that night. But it's late. Jesus looks around. I'm sure he was disgusted with what he had seen. So he and the disciples returned to Bethany for the night. It's probably the home of Mary, Martha, and, and Lazarus. You see, Jesus knew it wasn't safe for him to spend the night in the city. It wasn't safe, so they go to Bethany where it's safer and it's quieter. And scripture doesn't say this, but I'm sure that Jesus spent time praying that night. I'm positive he spent time praying. We know that Jesus has established a prayer, a pattern of prayer in his life. You see, Jesus' prayer life was a bit different than ours. He prayed before stuff would happen. 
<laughs> he stayed in constant communion with the Father, not, not like I do and pray last resort or after things happen. Jesus did preventative and preparation prayer. But we should do more of that, amen? But I'm sure Jesus was praying about what was going to happen Monday morning. Praying over his disciples. Praying about what was going to happen in the week to come. This is a big week in the history of the world right here. This is what we call the, the Passion Week. You may have heard that. Passion means to suffer. So Passion Week is the week we see the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. So I'm sure Jesus spent a lot of time praying for himself, praying for his disciples, seeking to prepare the disciples for the difficult week that lay ahead. They all needed rest and prayer to be prepared. Because Palm Sunday is, is the beginning of Jesus' final agonizing journey to his crucifixion. Quick summary of the week. This is how it will roll out. <clears throat> Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, as we saw last week. He spent Sunday night in Bethany at the village at the foot of the Mount of Olives. Jesus returns on Monday to Jerusalem. He curses the fig tree, and it withers and dies. He cleanses the temple. On Tuesday, Jesus continues the teaching in the temple, and it's at that point that the conspiracies to, to trap Jesus really escalate. Israel's religious leaders now have one goal in mind at this time. That's to get rid of Jesus. That is to kill him. Even if this means cooperating with their uh, lifelong enemies, even by any means would be justified to put an end to Jesus. So the Pharisees who opposed the Rome, who opposed Rome and its intrusion of the Jewish way of life, and then the Herodians who were the supporters of Herod the Great, they joined forces against Christ. Even the Sadducees, the religious uh, 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 liberals, attempted to discredit Christ. So what we see is a huge force comes together to put an end to this man and his teaching. Christ is silent on Wednesday, but the work to take out Jesus did not stop. We see that Jesus, uh, Judas Iscariot uh, conspired with the Sanhedrins to betray Jesus. Thursday, Jesus has his last supper. The Lord's Supper, if you may, with his disciples. He predicts what will happen on the next, in the next few days, and he gives his followers symbols of remembrance for his body and his blood sacrificed on behalf of all mankind. We say it every Sunday, right? He took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus then goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, to pray as he waited for his hour to come. And it wasn't long before he was arrested and taken to several sham trials before the chief priests and Pontius Pilate and Herod. You know, Jesus endured six trials, six trials. Three of the trials were by the Jewish leaders and three by the Romans. And during these trials, Jesus survived painful beating, whipping, mocking, spit upon. But it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough for the religious leaders to just have Jesus beaten. No, this act didn't satisfy them. So Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified. And on Good Friday, Jesus was hung on a cross. Saturday's in the tomb, and then we're back to a celebration Sunday. The weekend's with a victorious celebration because he has risen.
We celebrate it because we know that our Redeemer lives and he is alive sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Amen? So that gives us a, a, an abbreviated timeline of the Passion Week that we'll be studying for the next few weeks. So back to our text today, chapter 11, verse 12. <clears throat> On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered what remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered him, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes, what, believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, for, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, also who is in heaven, may forgive your trespasses. <clears throat> Here we have what I call a, a, another Marconian sandwich here. As we have seen, Mark uses this sandwich method several times in the gospel. And here we see that he, is, he has bracketed this account of the temple cleansing with the cursing of the fig tree. They go by the fig tree, Jesus curses it. They go to the temple, cleanse it. They come back by the fig tree the next day, and it is indeed dead. Now, out of all the miracles that Jesus performed, this one, the cursing of the fig tree, is the only miracle of destruction that is recorded. And if one were to, were to search the internet about this miracle, you would find some outrageous claims. And with that said, I'm going to make, I'm, a, I'm going to state some truth that's not in the Bible, but I guarantee it's absolute truth. All right, I'm not sure if everyone knows this. But everything you read on the internet is not true. Just saying. It's not written in the word of God, but it is truth. <clears throat> Listen, they accused Jesus of, of vindictive fury for blaming the tree for not producing figs out of season. They said that Jesus had no right to kill an innocent tree. I started to spend some time looking up innocent trees, but... I'm still confused on that. <clears throat> they speak of his unrighteous anger. You know, I, I bring this up. It's not a waste of time. I bring this up to show just how important it is to know the whole counsel of God. 
The more we know God's word, the more we know about God, the less we will be taken in by false teaching or internet claims. And we will see the need for knowing the whole counsel of God more as, as we study what Jesus said about faith and prayer that we just read. So important, so important to know the word of God. Because if you know the doctrine of righteousness and that Jesus is righteous in all ways, then when you read, read this on the internet, if you were to read this on the internet, you would know that Jesus did not have unrighteous anger. He is righteous. So he did not have unrighteous anger towards an innocent tree, if there's such thing as an innocent tree. <clears throat> so let's find out why Jesus cursed this tree. Palm Sunday, Jesus rides into town, he looks at the mess, as at, looks at that mess going on at the temple. He goes to Bethany for prayer and rest. Monday morning, they get up and head to Jerusalem. And on their way, Jesus sees this fig tree, and it says he was hungry. He was hungry. So he goes up the tree to get something to eat. And the word says, when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. That's important. For it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. As we have seen, there's a lot of confusion about this tree, but we should ask this question. Why would Jesus go to a tree to get something to eat if it's not the season for figs? Why would he do that? The all-knowing God, creator of all things, definitely knew it was not the season for figs. He knows what time of year it is. He knew the season before he went there to get something to eat. So why would he go to a tree and get something to eat? I did a little research on the fig tree. Now, the main harvest, or season for uh, ripe figs, is during mid-August to mid-October. And after that harvest, the branches of the fig tree sprouts buds that remain undeveloped throughout the winter. These buds swell into small green knots in, in, in March and April. As they swell into those knobs, follow shortening by the sprouting, after the knobs of the sprouting of the leaf buds come on the same branches. So the fig tree produces fig knobs before it produces leaves. Important. Because if the fig tree is in leaf, then therefore one expects to find branches loaded with fig knobs. So when Jesus, seeing a fig tree full of leaves, he goes to it, in hopes of finding something edible. Jesus knows that it's the spring of the year and that the figs are not yet ripened into mature summer figs, but they can be eaten. Jesus knew this. He knew the time and he saw the leaves. He knew this. So what is scripture telling us here? Is it, it's that this tree turns out to be deceptive, not so innocent if there's an innocent tree. Not so innocent. It's green. <clears throat> it's full of leaves. But when Jesus inspects it, he finds no knobs. It's a tree with the signs of fruit, but had no fruit at all. Signs of fruit. All the signs, but no fruit at all. And so when Jesus sees it has no fruit, he cursed the tree. And the scripture says, and his disciples heard it. Mark wanted us to know that the disciples heard it. Why? Because this is a teaching moment. 
Jesus wanted his disciples to hear it. There was a purpose in the cursing of the fig tree. <clears throat> you see, Jesus did not curse this tree because it did not, he did not get any food from it. That's not it. Instead, this was, listen, it was an acted out parable intended to teach the disciples. An acted out parable intended to teach the disciples. They did not understand at that moment, but they will. Confused again, I guess. You know, they're, they're going along and go, oh, well, Jesus cursed a tree on the way to Jerusalem. Probably didn't think anything about it. You see, they didn't know what Jesus was, uh, you know, that Jesus was on his way to cleanse the temple of the people who were desecrating it. They didn't know that. They had no idea what was going to happen when they went into Jerusalem. All they know at this point is that they're on their way to Jerusalem, and they hear Jesus say to a fig tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Something to take notice of, and I want you to know now that uh, if you don't know already, this will come to light as we go through the text. Listen, Jesus cursing the fig tree was showing his anger not at the tree, but at religious religion without substance. And we'll see how this plays out. Keep that in mind as we continue. But watch this. Jesus' Jesus's curse did not make the tree barren of figs. That's not what happened. The tree was already barren. You see? The cursing just sealed the way the tree had already been. It's like Jesus said to the tree, you know what? You want it that way? I'll let you have it that way. I'll turn you over to your own ways. Since you will not produce fruit, then you will never produce fruit. Jesus just sealed the deal. There's a sermon, Romans 2. <clears throat> but the disciples heard it. They didn't understand it, but they heard it. So they leave the fig tree, and they march into Jerusalem, and they go into the temple courtyard, verse 15. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple, and he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations but you have made it a den of robbers there is no way that we can comprehend the heartbreak that our Lord Jesus Christ felt the day he stood in the house of God there is no way we can even come close to knowing the feelings or emotions that were going through the heart of our Savior as he stood in his father's house we do, know one, we do know one emotion, though. We do know this for sure. He had righteous anger. Picture in your mind what's going on here. There's a lot happening on the inside of the walls of, this, of the temple. This is a huge area. You can fit 29 football fields inside the walls of the temple. 29. I have to catch my breath running half a football field. It's massive. So that gives you an idea how big the temple is. Now think about how many people that can fit in there. The outer courtyard, the Gentile courtyard, is 10 football fields in itself. A lot of space to put a lot of people. Put a lot of animals in there too. Josephus, a, a Jewish historian, writes that on Passover, 
the population of Jerusalem swelled to more than two million people. Two million people. Add to that all the animals, carts, and wagons trying to get through the city. They didn't have motorized Mustangs like we do now. Most vehicles only had one horsepower. Not 520. So, so picture in your mind all this activity going on. All that noise, all the smells. Add to that all the chatter that's going on about Jesus. They're talking about Christ. Think about all the talk about the kingdom of God coming. Because for the first century Jew, this was going to be the turning point in history. The Messiah was coming to town, a new ruler, a descendant of King David. He will usher in the kingdom of God. Everyone's talking about Jesus and waiting for him to make his move. They're just waiting to see what he will do. They all know that the Messiah, the one sent by God, would defeat the forces of evil. He will establish a universal reign of justice and peace. War and disease will cease. Pagans will destroy their idols and turn to worship Israel's God. Everyone's talking about this time. Everyone's talking about Jesus. The one who has been teaching about the kingdom of God is at hand for three years. Everyone's on edge, waiting to see. Everyone's watching. And what do they see? They see Jesus standing in the courtyard, looking at all this activity, listening to all these people, smelling that smell in his temple and in his house. What he saw and heard was definitely not a sweet aroma to the Lord. He was disgusted with what he had saw as he stands in that courtyard. You know, we, we've mentioned this many times. <clears throat> Jesus bringing in the kingdom of God is not like the people thought it would be. Take notice. Jesus standing in the courtyard. He goes to the temple when he comes to Jerusalem. He goes right to the temple. It was not the Roman government that Jesus had a problem with. Jesus did not come to town and say, hey, let's get this oppressive government straightened out and, and, and then everybody else, everything will be okay. Everybody will be okay if we just get rid of this oppressive government. He did not attack or try to take down one Roman soldier. The government's not the problem here. Jesus did not roll into town and say, hey, if we just fix this economy, then all the people will be just fine. If their pockets are full, no one will worry. If, if that was the case, then Jesus would not have shut down all the businesses that were making money in the temple. He entered the temple, began to drive out those who sold, those who bought in the temple. He overturned the table of the money changers. He turned the seats over those who sold pigeons. He wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He shut down a whole sector of the economy of Jerusalem. I found it very interesting that the word says, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. <clears throat> Think about the, um, the commerce that, that moved through that temple during that week of the Passover. Think about, again, think about how big that space had, that, that the, had been taken up by the robbers. This was a massive operation, and Jesus shut it down. No one moved. 
Jesus just won the biggest game of freeze tag ever played. No one moved. No one carried anything. The authoritative word of Jesus was on full display in that temple that day. No one moved anything. Jesus spoke and the entire place came to a standstill. The problem is not the government. The problem is not with the economy. Jesus states what the problem is as he's standing in the middle of that courtyard and nobody's moving. Jesus is teaching and what does he say? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. You see what has happened? The temple is no longer a place of worship. The temple was no longer a place of prayer. The temple was no longer a place where people from all nations could come and pray, to come and commune with the one true holy God. The temple had become a business. And instead of the, I guess you call the religious system, instead of the religious leaders being a light into the world, it had become a dark place. The temple, a place of worship, to be a light into the world had become a dark place. Instead of a place where the world could come and worship God, it had become a money-making operation. And they made their money on the backs of the poor. They took advantage of the ones who could not help themselves, all for a dollar. All for a dollar. Listen to what they would do. People would come to the temple in Jerusalem to offer sacrifices, right? They come to the, you know, the uh, Passover week to offer sacrifices. Originally, God instructed the people to bring sacrifices from their own flocks. However, uh, the, the religious leaders established a four markets on the Mount of Olives where such animals could be purchased. So they were selling animals outside of the, of the temple over there. They made it easy for people to worship. Don't travel with your animals. Buy one of ours. Like they're doing them a favor. I'm sure price gouging was very prevalent at the time. Where else are you going to buy an animal for sacrifice? You have to have it. And listen, if someone did bring their own animals, the priest would manage to find the animal unacceptable in some way so the worshiper was forced to buy one from them. So what was the use of bringing any animal towards to sacrifice? Just pay them what they want and get it over with. It was no longer worship. It was a duty. Pay them what they want and get it over with. On top of that, everyone was required to pay a temple tax when they came to town. And the money changers did big business during the Passover. If you were from a foreign country, you would have to have your money, you would have to have your money changed into Jewish currency because this was the only money that the merchants would accept and the only money accepted for payment at the temple tax. If you combine inflated exchange rate with exorbitant prices of animals, you can see how much money the organized crime families were making under the name of God. And you can see why the temple became a den of robbers. Now, besides selling the larger animals outside the temple, did you notice that where all the other acts of crimes were taking place? It was in the court of the Gentiles. If you remember when we studied the book of Revelation, we learned that this was the only place where Gentile converts to Judaism could worship. 
This is where anyone who was not Jewish, who had converted to Judaism, who believed in the one true living God, could come to worship. They could not go any further into temple because they were not, you know, quote, pure Jews. So God had provided a place for them to worship. But look what happened to that area, to the market. The den of robbers filled their worship space. They took it over. The merchants took over this area. So much so that when the foreigners, who, who, who probably traveled long distance to get there, found it impossible to worship when they got there. It was impossible to worship. Like I said earlier, the chaos in that court must have been tremendous. And the religious establishment could not care less, could care less about worship. All they saw was a place where lots of money could be made. And it broke the heart of Jesus to see the chaos in the house meant for prayer. So can you better understand the heartache that Jesus had? Can you better understand his righteous anger as he stood in that court? Can you better understand what the prophet said and what Jesus repeated? My house shall be, a call, be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. The temple was to be a place of prayer for all nations. From the beginning, all nations. The court where all nations were to come and worship was filled with darkness, selfishness, idol worship, greed, and blasphemy. So now can you better understand why Jesus drove them out? Jesus is ushering in the kingdom of God. But it's not like man thinks it ought to be. Now can you better understand why Mark deliberately sandwiched the temple cleansing in the middle of this story of the fig tree? Because Jesus' harsh words to that fig tree can be applied to the nation of Israel and its beautiful temple. Fruitful in appearance only. Appearance only because Israel was spiritually barren. Just as the fig tree looked good from a distance but was fruitless on close examination, so the temple looked impressive at first glance. Had all the signs of true worship, but its sacrifices and other activities were hollow because they were not done to worship God. It was done man's way. Jesus' strong denunciation of the tree was a dramatic, prophetic sign of God's impending judgment on Israel and the temple. So as the disciples saw the fate of that unfruitful tree, many of them would see the judgment to come on that unfruitful temple. And this fruitless temple would be destroyed in 70 A.D., not one stone left upon another. Now, we're not done with this passage. We're going to return, talk more about the temple in prayer next week. But something to think about, or, or should I say a great lesson here, throughout history, there have been thousands of churches or temples that have been built. They are very impressive to see. Some had beauty beyond imagination. And inside the walls of these buildings, they put on amazing shows as to, as to as call it an act of worship. Everyone dresses the part. Everyone plays the part. And yet, all of those religious buildings and shows amount to nothing 
without humble worship of the one true living God. Real worship is in the heart of the people, not the building. Real faith is in the heart of the people, not the building. A real relationship with God is in the heart of the people, not a relationship with a building or a place. We are called to be a light unto the world. We are commanded to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And there's no better way to do that than to show them the love that Jesus has shown us. And we are not able to do that unless we love our Lord, our God, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's where it all begins. We are the temple of God. The people are the temple of God. And we are to be fruitful and glorify God in all that we do. It's not the building.